Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction, but more importantly, it's about recovery and is brought to you by our friends at knowyourscript.org. Knowyourscript.org is a wealth of knowledge right there at your fingertips, talking about the opioid epidemic, how to talk to yourself, your doctors, and even your kids about opioids. Sometimes there's a safer alternative and kind of all that good information. And without them, we couldn't do this podcast weekly. I'm Casey Scott. That is Dr. Matt Woolley. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. In fact, I used their website last week in a therapy session because I had an oppositional teenager sort of arguing with me about opioids and blah, blah, blah. And I had him, you know, he went home, reviewed that, came back and yeah, he, he learned a lot of good stuff. I think it's great for parents or people that are oppositional teenagers. Well, because, you know, that's what we've said about this podcast from the very beginning. When it comes to the world of addiction and recovery, what we really need as, you know, a collective whole is an education because there's so much of it that we just don't understand and we just kind of took for, for face value from our parents or from the doctors or from whatever. And, and now we're really educating ourselves and figuring out what is out there. You know, while I've said that from the beginning, we're not anti-opioid on this show. I think opioids serve a purpose. But what what we are is educating the consumers that sometimes there's a better alternative. Right, exactly. And if you don't educate yourself, then it's kind of intimidating when you go in and talk to the doctor, you don't know what to say. And so you just say, okay, and you take it. So I had this interesting conversation with my daughter the other day. She's Frankie. and Frankie, uh, right. And we have these great conversations. She's the middle child, right? She, and I'm a middle child. Yeah. So we relate. You guys do. We both like to dance. We both think I'm funny. Uh, there's a lot of things going on there. But there's a show on Netflix right now, and I'm probably late to the party. It's called Outer Banks. Outer Banks. Yeah, and it's about know, these kids who live on it. the Outer Banks of the, kind of the society, and they're kind of like the workers. It's not North Carolina Outer Banks? I, maybe. I think that's it. Oh, is that it? Yeah, I think okay. it is. And there's this guy named John B., and he's the hot stud that everybody's like, hey, oh, John B., John B.'s hot, you know? Do they say Johnny B. Good? No, but oh. they just say John B., Okay. and my name's Casey B., and you're, so- You're C-Money. Nah, I know, but I'm a, I got a lot of names. So anyways, I she goes, hey, Dad, can I watch this? Presley's watched it, and that's my older child. Right. And I go, uh, I don't know. Let me talk to Presley. And then Presley goes, Did you yeah. check the ratings? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. no, I never did. <laughs> okay. I probably should. All right. Well, you're 0 for 1, but keep going. Yeah. And so anyways, she ends up watching it. Yeah. And then I start to watch it, and then I get hooked, and she gets hooked. Yeah. And so I go, Frankie, man, um, there's a lot of drug use in this. And she goes, yeah, Dad, but it's just party drugs. What? And I went, What? Just party drugs. Yeah. And so that's... And What's she learning from Johnny B? Well, so here's the thing is that I go, you understand party drugs are just drugs. And she goes, yeah, but they're just doing them at a party. And I go, okay, we got to have a conversation. That's awesome, actually, though, that you got that window into how she's thinking about it. But when you think about it, that's what that's what mainstream media is portraying to the kids. That's true. Is that, yeah. that this, it's, it's just a party drug. No, Dad, you just do these at a party. We're and, just adding to the fun. Yeah, you know, and, and, and no, it's not. And I go, yeah, but party drugs become home drugs, we become street drugs. I mean, the, I mean drugs are- They're all are, the same. They're all the drugs, yeah. but you're just thinking, somehow they justify it in their mind, or she was in her little mind going, oh, this is just what you do at a party. And how old is she? So she's 13. Yeah, so she's right on the, she's at that- Tween Dif age. Difficult age where she's trying to transition out of childhood into adolescence and it's a mess. Yeah. And they still think like young kids at that age, but they want to do older 
teen stuff. And so, yeah, that's a good thing that you guys talked about that. And so once again, uh, you know, recovery saves the day with me because we've had therapists on this show that says when you're watching TV programs, sometimes it's good to push pause because now we can do that on TV right. and have a genuine conversation. Because although she thought it was just a party drug, she didn't make the connection from party drug to, you know. Which if she hadn't said that, I assume you would have assumed she knew the difference. Yeah. You know, there's like, oh, yeah, there's drug use. But in her head, because party was in front of it, it made it somewhat acceptable. And that's what teens are doing or that's what kids are doing. I was like, no, 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 no. That's that's not how this works. Oh, so was she receptive to what you said? Yeah. You know, I think so. And, you know, in my recovery, I've got over three years now. I think because and I'm hoping my fingers are crossed, but because of my battle with addiction, I've saved them from a world of hurt. And I hope that they can learn from my mistakes. Now, I'm not naive to think that some of them, my kids might not try alcohol or might try something. But I hopeful that they'll be more cognizant of what it did to me and how it affected my life and maybe think twice. You can go, hey, you know what? I saw what my dad did. Mm-hmm. I saw how it almost ruined his life, almost ended up in prison. And because of that, I think I'm going to say no. I hopefully that I gave them a good excuse to tell their friends when they're in a situation where they might get peer pressured yeah. and, and go, Hey, look, come on, everybody's doing it. You should do it. And they can go, um, you know, my dad was an alcoholic and I saw it almost ruin his life yeah. and I'm going to pass. Well, let, let me, is it okay if I jump on you a little bit yes. though for a second? Yes. Cause you keep, you keep throwing out the word hope. Yeah. You know, Obama would love that if he was listening. I'm sure he downloads our show. Yeah. Um, but uh, let's do better than that for our kids. I agree. It starts with hope. Mm-hmm. Let me make a suggestion on this one specifically. I'm taking notes. The key difference is because people observe stuff all the time and don't really learn from it. They know about it, but mm-hmm. they don't necessarily gain insight and behavior change from it, i.e., people still smoke cigarettes, and sorry if you're a listener who smokes a cigarette. It's just, you smell like an I mean, ashtray. It's just the dumbest thing you could possibly do, right? Yeah. It, but young kids now are, are still smoking cigarettes, not just vaping. So that's an example. So here with her, you guys, you, you identified the problem. You got some awesome insight for how she was thinking. We call that a cognitive distortion. Mm-hmm. She was distorting the reality of the situation. It's just a party drug, and that's normal for that age. And then you you had a great conversation with her, and you hope she learned from it. Let's do a little bit better. I would say this weekend, if you guys are watching this TV show or some other TV show, pause it and ask her. Just say, hey, I want to follow up on our conversation. What do you think now? So a few days have gone by. Did she really process it the way you wanted her to? And if she says the right answer, which is like, oh, yeah, I totally get it, Dad. Those drugs. And, blah, and she sort of repeats what you said. Then we don't even have to hope anymore. We know at least in this instance, she learned what you wanted her I like to learn. That. Right? I like the follow But if we just hope, you know, 13-year-olds are kind of squirrely. And, and I was maybe just white noise to her. Yeah, we we sometimes lecture, you know. And I, my kids like to say, "Don't psychoanalyze me, Dad." You know, and so you're they're, they're not listening anymore. You know, and so it's good to go back and ask an open ended question, just see if she absorbed the message. If not, you have to do it again and just keep going. Yeah, I love it. See, that's why I like having a best friend that's a therapist. <laughs> well, you know, I like having a best friend who's good at golf. You complete me, Doctor Matt. Thanks, buddy. I wish we were in an elevator. Well, later. That means the show's over. But the show's actually just beginning, and this is what's going to be happening for you guys. We've got a guest that flew in from Washington. We got her via our good friend Rob Eastman. Her name is Gentry Jones. We're going to find out her story. You're listening to Project Recovery right here on KSL. A stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That is Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist, and our guest today has probably got the coolest names out of any guest we've ever had oh, on the podcast. Love it. Love it. Her name is Gentry Vaughn Jones. Gentry Fawn Jones. Fawn? Yeah. Like, it even got better. <laughs> like a baby deer. Yeah. Oh, that yeah. is awesome. Mm-hmm. And you came to us from Washington. Uh, tell us how this all became a thing. So about six months ago, I decided that I wanted to quit my job as a CPA. And I was like, I want to do 
um, recovery and life coaching. And I had followed Rob. Rob Eastman we're Rob talking Eastman, about. Yeah, Rob Eastman. So tattooed life coach. Tattooed life coach. i got to pause eight. for a second, though. CPA, you're a certified public accountant. Yes. That's a lot of school and a lot of work to get to that point. Yes. I, I'm right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so I, the, I got to the dream job. I was a controller um, at a fruit packing warehouse. Well, I don't know if a fruit packing warehouse, but the controller part. Um, I don't know fruit, but we like fruit. What kind of you fruit? Apples. Yeah, apples. Everybody loves apples. Yeah. Washington State. Baby. Washington State apples. Um, but I got the controller position and I just hated it. And then I was in recovery and I was posting more on social media and co- connecting more with people on social media with recovery. And I was like, that's where I belong. So and we're going to find out more about that at the end of the podcast. Mm-hmm. But where does the story of Gentry Fawn Jones mm-hmm. begin? So I grew up in a really small town in central Washington. And I'm the youngest of three, so um, the baby, the baby, huh. <laughs> the baby, and I fit fit it perfect. I mean, like the hyperactive, um, got away with a lot of stuff. Always blamed my big brother whenever we'd fight. I'd start it, he'd get in trouble. Um, but my, both my parents are teachers. My dad's a basketball coach. Had a good childhood. My parents separated when I was in fifth grade. And I think fifth grade's kind of starting to be that transitional part, too. And um, when that happened, I started to kind of feel like I didn't belong with other people. That's when I feel like I started really feeling that mental health of anxiety and depression at the time, not knowing it was anxiety and depression. But then get to middle school, and that's when I had my first drink. And Tell me about that situation. <laughs> so I go to my friend's house where I was mad about a boy or something stupid so we go to her house and her parents go to bed and she was like let's go sneak some vodka and i'm like okay cool so we go and we sneak some vodka into soda which we felt hammered we probably had like a shot for throughout the whole night like we probably didn't have very much but i remember just laughing uncontrollably i remember us peeing in the closet because we didn't want her parents to hear us keep flushing the toilet i think that's more than a shot (laughs) (laughs) i'm just gonna go out on a limb maybe maybe, well we were in it to a cup right so but we were just (laughs) i'm not sure that makes it a lot better i don't know if you're saving this (laughs) anyway so yeah maybe more than a shot but it wasn't like uh i mean we we just got a good buzz but you're off you're only seven in seventh grade at the seventh time. Seventh grade, yeah. So I'm 13. You were seventh grade or fifth grade? I was seventh grade. At the seventh time. grade, okay. I was going to make a quick comment, actually. Um, after this show, I get to go talk to a bunch of physicians about anxiety in kids. And guess what? Age 11, which is when you turn uh, you turn 11 in fifth grade, that's the, the age of onset, the typical age of onset for anxiety disorders in kids. It's that prepubescent time. And so that's interesting that you both, you had kind of the family trauma because mm-hmm. separation, divorce is always somewhat traumatic, even if everybody behaves themselves. And, uh, and the anxiety kicked in. And then a couple of years later, you find this relief from that uh, via the uh, one shot of vodka. <laughs> okay, maybe two. <laughs> so when you wake up the next morning, do you feel guilt? Do you feel shame? Or did you feel kind of like a, a, like a bad girl? Like, hey, we did something fun and got away with it. I think we did something fun and got away with it. I was a chronic people pleaser. And so I liked the idea that I did something I wasn't supposed to, but didn't get in trouble for it. Because if I got in trouble, I was devastated whenever I got in trouble. But um, alcohol is just so socially acceptable. So as, and we, I go into high school and we... I'm a three-sport athlete, volleyball, basketball, fast pitch. I was in ASB. I was um, in drama. I was- You're checking all the boxes. All the, yeah. But then could get away with drinking on the weekend because, or smoking weed. We started smoking weed probably junior year and, but was still doing all the things I was supposed to do. And I'm like, this is adult life. I mean, like, this is what adults do. They go to work and then they party. Well, it's that rebellion that actually is very developmental. It's predictable. If you're a parent and you're like, oh my gosh, my kid's rebelling. It's like, okay, they're normal. Mm-hmm. And that's, and you, so it sounds like you found this way to kind of walk that line between being out there and being a people pleaser. Oh, wow. Look at uh, Gentry. She does all the sports and the grades and all the stuff. And then on the weekend you could sneak away and be rebellious. And that's, that's pretty typical stuff for a teenager. Right. So did you feel like you were drinking in excess in high school or were you feel like you were just drinking how everybody else was? Or did you feel like it had something on you at that young age? I feel like I knew the way I drank wasn't normal. Normal. I, I knew that I liked it more than I thought my friends liked it. And see, that was with me. I always was the drunkest, but in my head, I was always winning. 
I was like, you guys were supposed to be getting drunk, and I'm killing you guys. You <laughs> know, competition. <laughs> I, but I really did think that. I was like, I don't know what you guys are doing, but I'm here to get drunk. Well, that's one of the things people talk about a lot. I think that's a common thread through people who uh, struggle with addiction is you're competitive, and you you want to you know 100 percent all or nothing. I'm gonna be the drunkest or whatever. And so, I like, mean, that's, we see that a lot, right? You hear a lot of uh, people in recovery go, I didn't have an off button. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, my off button was when I passed out. My off button is when I, I, I don't remember because I blacked out. That was your off button. It wasn't like, I was never done at the end of the night going, oh no, I think I'm good. Mm-hmm. Those words never came out of my mouth. I was never good. If there was something to drink and I was still up, I was drinking it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to jump back though. You met, you said something I think is kind of interesting. Maybe you can like, expound on it a little bit you said i could tell i i I liked it more than my friends like there's something in there tell me like what were you noticing in yourself that made you feel like you liked it more than your friends it was just always my idea like oh we can see if so-and-so could buy it for us we could i can sneak some vodka from my mom's liquor cabinet, which she was drinking water for probably a year and a half, and she didn't even know. <laughs> so, you were, so you were the Mom's instigator. Like, Man, this is the worst vodka ever. <laughs> You're the instigator. Yeah. You're the instigator, but you also mentioned this anxiety, and like, talk a little bit about like your parents were in your life, but what was that like having them separate in fifth grade, and then by the time you get to high school, what was family life like? Um, my My parents... It was just a I don't know. I that's a good question. They 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 were still good parents, mm-hmm. but it was clear that the focus was on their divorce. Hmm. And which I think happens in divorce. I mean, I don't think they did anything wrong. I just think that my mom was struggling um and we were we weren't on our own, but it felt like we were on our own. Are you living with your mom or your dad? My mom. I was going to say that's a really common, especially the first few years after divorce, which were formative years for you, uh, is a time where kids' supervision goes down. And and understandably, parents are in that process of sort of rebuilding their lives and dealing with all the fallout, whether it's emotional, financial, whatnot, of being divorced. And so kids sort of, you know, there's a lot of you good, you good, you know, and you're like, yeah, my grades are good or, you know, I'm still the star of the volleyball team. OK. And so we don't blame parents for that. In fact, I've worried about my I have one daughter. She's the youngest. And when we got divorced, that's been one of my concerns is like, am I supervising her enough? Are we spending enough time? So I think that does happen a lot. How about the anxiety piece and the depression piece? Do you feel like part of the reason you liked it more than your friends was it was an escape from that as well? Oh, absolutely. And I think it was an escape from the pressure of that perfectionism of like, I have to be the best athlete. I have to be the best student. I have to be, or I want to be, um, because I was the one putting that pressure on me. No one else really put that pressure on me. And wanting to fit in. When I was drinking and socializing with my friends, even if I was making an ass of myself, at the time, I didn't feel like I was. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have a whole lot of social anxiety in those moments because I was drunk. So it was like, let the next morning I may be like, have that guilt. I did what? And, yeah. <laughs> but in the moment it was like, yo, we're having so much fun. And really I was having so much fun. And everybody else was like sipping their 03s. Do you guys do your 03s? <laughs> That's what we started with. No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> so did you ever get in trouble? Did anybody ever mention anything to you like, hey, you might be partying a little too much in high school? Um, probably our senior year, my boyfriend and I, we partied more than everyone else, but we just started hanging out with people that weren't in high school. Oh, so you found new friends. Yeah. Yeah. Ones that accepted you the way you were. Yeah. That were over 21 and could buy us alcohol. (laughs) Okay. And so after that, you find yourself going to college, I guess, because you're a CPA. Mm -hmm. Uh, Where'd you go to college? Central Washington University. All right. For a minute. I went to a couple. And how come a couple? Um, I went there for a year and I didn't have... Volleyball, basketball, fast pitch, ASB, a teachers that knew me my whole life that I had to be held accountable to. Like I didn't want that. My I didn't have a name for me anymore. An identity, right? And then I went um, went down the rabbit hole of just drinking. Did your parents? Did they? You said they were teachers. Were they at your school growing up? Uh, My mom's elementary, and my dad worked at a neighboring town. Okay. But still, kind of that being being a teacher's kid. Oh yeah. If I if I messed up in class, they got email through the work. Yeah. 
So you said uh, after your first year at Central College, uh, you went to another one and you went down a drinking hole. What does that look like? Well, my first year of college, I got alcohol poisoning. It was like September, first fall quarter, I got alcohol poisoning. Um, And then started doing drugs, cocaine, just kept going to school, but then thought that I just needed to switch schools. That that helped. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that didn't help. We just I just kept finding the same type of people every school. I, you know, we've had a few people on here who've talked about alcohol poisoning, and even in college, we you know there was rumors of somebody getting alcohol poisoning. But I mean, I'll be honest with you, I'm a host of a recovery podcast. What is alcohol poisoning? I mean, what does it look like? I mean, did you end up in the hospital? Yeah. So I passed out in a dorm. It was at the. It was actually the weekend after the first time I had done cocaine. I hadn't eaten or slept for like a day and a half. We started drinking on a Monday night because that's responsible. And I ended up passed out in the bathroom of the men's bathroom too. I went to the wrong one. <laughs> um, passed out in the bathroom and somebody had found me and they called 911 and came in with a stretcher. I still had a sense of humor though because they asked me how old I was and I was like, not old enough to drink. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a blackout at that point, yeah. right? Yeah, you don't remember and you have those toxic levels of alcohol in your system. It could be very dangerous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when uh, rumors of your alcohol poisoning get back to your parents, was there a conversation or did they even know about it? No, they knew about it um, and they were worried, but I think it got chalked up to kids drinking college. And now you need to be more responsible and that I should have learned my lesson. Did you? I didn't get alcohol poisoning again. <laughs> but but I you kept partying. Yeah. And at this time you've introduced cocaine, mm-hmm. uh, any other drugs? Marijuana was always in there too. Kind of a staple. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you end up graduating. Yeah. So I went to Central for a year. I went to a community college, got my AA. I went to Bellevue College over by Seattle got pregnant, and then ended up back where I live now with my son and finished college. What was that experience like? You kind of skipped over that. <laughs> you know, went to Bellevue, got pregnant, came back. Yeah. Like, what was that experience like? Uh, which part? <clears throat> Get the, let's Not, just go Getting all pregnant? Yeah. So Bellevue's well, fine. How about the pregnant part? Yeah. The getting pregnant part? Yeah. I mean, what? How? Was how, it a boyfriend? Uh, yeah. So actually, and I was sober. I guess I just skip a little part in there because I got I put myself in rehab at 21, went to college and um, put yourself in rehab. I put myself. Parents in, weren't pressuring you. Nope. Or? And actually, there was a lot of people saying like, "Yo, well, you're not that bad." You know, like once you go, you have that on your record that you went to. Oh, rehab. Oh, really? Trying to kind of discourage. Is there really you? a rehab record? I don't know. Just no, like in my it's social, your permanent social record, life, you know, from fifth grade. And yeah. All spitballs. No, that that's a myth. I think. Um, but uh, so t- how did you make that decision? So if parents aren't pushing you and friends are kind of saying, hey, whoa, that may not be a good idea. What was it about your situation that made you check yourself in? Because that's a little unusual at 21. Um, I knew if I wanted to be the person I knew I could be, I couldn't be drinking anymore. And I was drinking a lot with people when people weren't around. So they didn't see how bad I was because days I wasn't working, I was just getting blacked out drunk at my house and like painting and just solo yeah they call it isolating yeah you were just isolating mm-hmm. yeah because you didn't want anybody to see how much you were drinking right well and for a long time that's been kind of one of the main red flags that they've talked about in in you know in the community is like hey if you're drinking alone uh you probably have a problem and so is that sort of one of the red flags that went off for you yeah and at the time i was also dating someone who was sober Mm. And he really was pushing me. So my family also thought that he, I was doing it because he was pushing me, which was true. He was pushing me. And I have like uh, relationship issues, too. So I probably was partly because he. You're I, a people I, pleaser. Right. I wanted I wanted him to like me. So if I go to rehab and get sober, we could be sober together and live happily ever after. And that worked out perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> you end up having a kid and moving back home. Yeah. And you finish your degree. Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's hear about the first. I, I'm kind of curious since now we get to the heart of it, which means uh, there's uh, you know a little uh, pressure to you know social you know that dependency. I want somebody to like me. People please, please or pressure. Maybe when we come back from break, we can hear just kind of like how helpful you felt that first rehab was. You're listening to Project Recovery right here on KSL. 
Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I am Casey Scott. That is Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist, and our guest today is Gentry Jones. Uh, we just uh, heard from her talking about her kind of foray into uh, partying in college, and she ended up uh, going into rehab. Uh, put yourself in there at age 21. So what kind of a treatment facility was this? It was a 21-day inpatient treatment facility, and I just wanted a break. I thought if I just took a break from drinking that I would it, I would kind of figure it out after that. And I think a lot of times, I can speak for myself, you, you feel that break will get you control-alt-delete, will just reset everything. Mm-hmm. And I won't do the things that I said I would never do again. I won't over-drink, I won't be blackout, I won't do this, I won't drive, and those things. But normally never happens that way. Right. <laughs> so you find yourself in this 21-day program. What, what did you learn there? Um, I, it was, it was a really good experience. I wasn't done. I felt like I wasn't done drinking. I thought that it was going to be a quick fix of like, I'm going to go, I'm going to get this back under control and then I'm just going to go back. And I didn't want to, I wanted to just be a non-drinker. I didn't want to be somebody who has to be obsessed with not drinking. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it was a really good experience, but I, I wasn't done. How long did your sobriety last after that first rehab? About a year, about a year. And I got enough to get pregnant and have my son. And then a couple months after I had him, I started drinking again. So walk me through that first time you had a drink after rehab. Um, I was a new mom and I felt that now that I was back home and that I had a kid to be accountable for, that I wouldn't go down that same rabbit hole that I was before. But now I had a little bit more maturity and... Responsibility? Mm-hmm. And uh, so wh- why did you? Because that's what people do. That's what moms do. Mommy needs wine. <laughs> I mean, that's the culture. It's very... And, and I like to say it's like my small town, but it's really not my small town. It's everywhere. It's like we just... You just drink. People... That's how you relax. That's how you have fun. Um, and so I wanted to continue to fit in. So once you have that first wine, how long does it uh, take before you go back down that rabbit hole, you say? So a couple months after that, I had a pretty bad night, and then I kind of would get better again. So I went back and forth for the next eight years. I mean, I finally got sober for good when I was 30. A bad night, meaning like kind of overdid it. Yeah, like overdid it and like, oh, man. pull it back the next day. Okay, I'm not going to go that far again. You have to do the walk of shame, call your friends, see what damage was done. (laughs) A little embarrassed, yeah. Um, Sounds like you know what that's like. Oh, oh, yeah. (laughs) Okay. But then I got pregnant again. So every time I got pregnant, I kind of got saved for, for the nine months and then a couple months after that for nursing. So it was like I'd get the break. Like a year. Mm-hmm. But you know what? That's not uncommon. We've had multiple pe- people come into this podcast who are heavy meth users, heroin, but every time they got pregnant, they could stop. Yeah. You know, and then soon as... you know, Thank they, goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Thank yeah. goodness, which is amazing. Yeah. But then soon as, the, 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 you know, they had the baby and, and they got someone normal, they were like, I'm never going to do that again, but they do well, it. Well, and I think, uh, Gentry, you bring up a really good point is that a lot of times... Uh, people will say these external factors will keep me in line, right? So now I'm a little bit older. I've been to rehab. I have a kid. Now I have two kids. You know, I'm a, I'm a mother. You know, these sorts of signs of maturity or external responsibilities outside of oneself. It's like I'll rely on those things, and that'll help keep me in check. But how well did that work for you? It was work. It was work. I mean, that's what it was. It was hard to maintain. It was really hard to maintain. And then I got pregnant again because that summer before I got pregnant again, it was pretty bad. And it was like, like people are starting to talk about how bad I'm getting. It's not just like she's just a drinker. It's like Gentry was passed out. Um, So we're back to the blackout drinking. Mm -hmm. And is this child number three or two? Um, That was so. uh, I got the before I got pregnant. That blackout period that I had that was really bad. That was like my ten year reunion. Um, that was child number three and four. I got pregnant with twins. Oh wow! Yeah, that's the way to do it. Yeah, just <laughs> <laughs> that's the way to do it. Everything in excess, huh? Yeah, yeah, like, <laughs> all or nothing. <laughs> yeah. How about being? Uh, I'll, you know, if, if there's something in here you don't want to talk about, that's okay. Mm-hmm. But now you've got children, and people are starting to say, "Whoa." Gentry's overdoing it. She she may have a problem. 
how do you feel like that affected your ability to to be a good mom? And I'll preface kind of what I'm the reason I'm bringing this up is at each stage of our life, we have like the one or two really important things that we do that are part of our identity, you know, and, and it, at different ages, those change and they're different. So when you have children, part of your identity good or bad is what kind of parent you feel like you are. And so I'm just kind of curious. That sounds like you're sort of battling between trying to be a good mom and take care of these kids. And also we really have a drinking problem that's starting to get out of control. Do you feel like the drinking affected your ability to feel like you were being a good mom? Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. I was a binge drinker, so I would be on top of my game for a while and get stressed out or feel like I deserved it. It was, it's like all one of the reward, right? It was either reward or it was, I've, a punishment. I, yeah. No, I, I mean, and when I say a punishment, it was like, I'm horrible. I might as well just do this. Sure. And, and so you kind of lean into it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like, they are saying I'm a drunk. So you know what? I'm going to be a drunk. Be the best drunk. Yeah. But I mean, <laughs> in your addict brain, that makes sense. Sure. And, 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 it, and it numbs you from the pain and having to feel. And so it sounds like you're going back and forth, back and forth. You have these long bouts of sobriety, then these horrible binge drinking where you have to do the walk of shame and the apology tour in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got to be exhausting. It was extremely exhausting. And so when I got pregnant the third time with the twins, I was like, okay, this is going to be it. This is going to be the time that I'm done. Um, and I started drinking two weeks after they were born, which was the quickest I had drank after all three pregnancies. And this was a time I was so, so confident that I was going to be done. And then I just felt very hopeless. I spent the next year hopeless and just- Was there a trigger that caused that? I mean, why so quickly after if you were so certain? Um, my ex-husband, we were still married at the time, he still drank. And so that was really hard that he would continue to drink in the household. Uh-huh. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, where does it go from here? I mean, I mean, you, you, you start drinking two weeks after your twins are born. Mm-hmm. Uh, you said you spent a year being hopeless. Um, can I jump in on that one too? Yes, I feel like I've interrupted a lot. No, today. you're good. Is that okay? You're a doctor. I can come back next you're a week. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, I guess this is an interesting thing that I think a lot about when we talk with people that are in the process or in recovery of, of addiction, and that is. With mental health issues like anxiety and depression, at first, the alcohol or the drugs feels like an escape. It feels like, wow, this is way better than Prozac. This is way easier than therapy. You know, you get that relief, you know, that that disconnect from your problems and your stress and your depression. But then you use the magic word hopeless. I spent a year feeling hopeless. And many people, when they think about depression, they they think about what they see on TV. Someone's sad and they stay in bed and cry. And of course that happens. But I would say feeling hopeless is one of the most core aspects of depression. Would you say, and so now alcohol, instead of treating and making you feel better, like you're getting a break from a mental health issue, it's making it much, much worse. That's my guess. You tell me what that year was like for you. Yeah, I was, I was trapped. I felt trapped in, in the, with the alcohol and in the situation of not feeling supported in trying to get sober, I would get um, a couple of weeks under my belt and find alcohol in the house. And then I would rebel against that. Like once I, if I found it, I would just start drinking it and be like, like throw it in his face. Like, well, I found it. So it's your fault that I drank again. And I think I was very manipulative in that year too, um, by using him as an excuse for why I was acting the way I was. Um, was he always supportive or was he really helpful? No, but I was also an alcoholic trying to get my fix. But he wasn't holding the liquor to your mouth and making you drink. Mm-mm. Did he ever talk about him becoming sober himself as a team, teamwork? Uh, I talked about us getting sober together. Mm-hmm. He wasn't receptive? No. And that's okay. I mean, because yeah. it's his life. It's part of the dynamic, yeah. though. I mean, I think if you want to understand, if anyone wants to understand their story... Uh, you have to understand your dynamics in your intimate, close relationships. Like, how did how was I affected by that? That sounds like a tough, tough dynamic. Yeah, we had spent our whole relationship drinking together. It was kind of a big part of our um, our life. And so, when we weren't drinking, it's like we almost didn't like each other. <laughs> like, well, that happens, right? I mean, all the time. Lots of people get together and they're. Their main, you know, connecting activity, either doing drugs or drinking. And 
once that goes away, you're kind of like, oh, that's all we had in common, or that's mostly what we had in common. We had a guest on the podcast probably two years ago. Her name was Lizzie Dankers, and uh, she got sober. And uh, her husband told us that a therapist sat him down and said, she's going to grow. Either you grow with her or you're going to grow apart from her. He goes, that's just how it is. And he loved her, her husband loved her so much. He goes, I'm going to grow with her. So he started going to Al-Anon because he just saw the writing on the wall. And, 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 and that's what he attributes to them still being together is that, you know, I mean, that's what happens. And so all of a sudden you take something that was so central to your guys' relationship out of it. And then you go, well, what do we really have in common? Do we like, do we like the same things? Do we like this? And and that's where you have that the identity crisis comes. It's like, well, wait a minute, why are we together? Mm-hmm. And so it sounds like you were going through some of that. Yeah, we and I wish we would have done more of that when I was struggling, pushed for therapy and pushed. And he, we tried to, we talked about therapy after I was sober and after I had already decided I was done. Mm-hmm. And then I was done. And I mean, extremist, alcoholic, I'm just all or nothing. And once I was nothing, um, I I couldn't unchange my mind. And um, I just saw him as alcohol. And he's he wasn't a drinker like the way I was. He could he was he can drink. He could function. He didn't burn his life to the ground the way I was burning our life to the ground. Um, But once I decided that he was alcohol, they both had to go. So you, you get divorced, mm-hmm. and at this point when you got divorced, are you sober? I was sober and divorced at the exact same time. Like we are separated, I guess. Like when I got sober, I left the relationship. So on this podcast, people often refer to their rock bottom. Do you have a rock bottom? Oh, the last day I drank wasn't my worst day. It was just... And it's not... Normally, are they the same day? You know what I mean? Because... Well, a rock bottom, I think, uh, at least in the context that we use it, it I, I kind of like to think of it as sort of a crisis that creates insight. And that may not translate into immediate behavior change, right? Uh, but there's you know, often something, because it is a disease and it's got a hold of a person, and good intentions and wanting to stop for other people has never been a thing. Like it just doesn't – there has to be some sort of switch that flips internally. So I think what Casey's asking is – like, do you remember anything where you were like, you know what, that was the turning point for me? You'll often hear people say, I was just sick and tired of being sick and tired. Or, I, you know what I mean? That was it. I just, you know, I mean, I didn't want to do this anymore. And it's not a disease where you can the next day just go, I'm better. I mean, mm-hmm. we've got to do the work. You've got to do the therapy. You've got to do whatever it takes to get you to the best person you can be. And sometimes that takes multiple rehabs, months of a journey. So was there something that kind of just was the catalyst for you to go, yeah, I think I'm done. I'm out. I had gotten drunk out of work lunch, had anxiety, and left work without telling anyone and freaked a lot of people out at work. And they sat me down um, when I came back and I was just crying hysterically. And I think the fact that like my inner circle knew, my kids knew that I was struggling and kind of the people around me in my town, like the, not the whole town, just the, my inner circle in the town. Um, but once people at work knew, it was like that circle got bigger and the accountability got bigger. And I was already trying for the last year to try and quit. But once that accountability hit, it was like, I'm going to lose my job. And then I can't do anything for these kids. And so do you find yourself going into another rehab? How did you get sober? I started going to AA and I did that for about two months and then I started blogging and then I started posting on Instagram and then Instagram kind of became my recovery. That's where I share. That's where I connect with people. That's, um, that's kind of my outlet. What was the first thing you posted that you said, hey, they get me or this made sense? Do you remember? Yeah, so when I hit 90 days sober, which was the longest I had gone um, for years, I I started writing. And so I had put a blog out talking about how I hadn't been drinking for 90 days. And it was the first time I spoke publicly about my alcohol problem because I never posted alcohol pictures at all on social media. Like I tried to keep that clean image on social media. And I was very, very vanilla in it. I didn't talk about how I was like driving around drunk with my kids or whatever. It was just like I decided to take a step back from alcohol and I am 90 days alcohol free. And I had 
a lot of people, not even knowing how bad I was, reach out to me and saying, like, congratulating me and saying, hey, you know what? I have a problem too. Or I've been struggling. People I didn't know is reaching out to me. And that's when it was like, that. this is where I, I like that feeling. I like knowing that other people connect. Um, I don't feel alone. I don't feel, they don't feel alone because they read my story. And that was really powerful for me. Isn't that amazing? Like how quickly people will connect back with you when you're authentic and share your story because there's so many people that have the same or similar experiences and they're just waiting to be able to connect with somebody that I think A, understands what they're going through and B, isn't judgmental about it. It's just they're after the connection. And I think that uh, is a very common experience when a person is willing to share their story, which I don't know, was that kind of scary to to put the I'm stepping back out Did there. You hesitate to hit send. <laughs> I absolutely because I I was only ninety days and I was like, what if I want to start drinking again? And well, and, and you're a chronic people pleaser, right? Like you wouldn't even post pictures of drinking in a normal social setting. So so that I don't know. Tell what was that like? Going, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna air a little dirty laundry here. It was another layer of accountability. My Instagram, I feel like, is a huge account accountability partner for me. So every time I share, every time somebody else knows, it's just another reason to not do it again. Yeah, I like that. In fact, uh, I think in the early 2000s, they did a really great uh, study on Facebook with making, creating these uh, huge accountability partnerships with, you know, putting out there, I'm going to start going to the gym or I'm going to stop drinking, I'm going to do these things. And, and then you do follow-ups. And lo and behold, accountability partners are huge in helping people uh, – stop bad behaviors and maintain good ones you're listening to project recovery you just heard gentry talk about her first post on her social media that helped her get sober today she's celebrating over three and a half years of sobriety we're going to find out what she's doing next stick around you're listening to project recovery right here on ksl Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. Our guest today is Gentry Jones. And uh, she talked about her first post that kind of got her on her road to recovery. Um, no slip-ups in three and a half years? I've had one slip-up. And was it a big slip-up? I mean, because here's the thing. Uh, relapses happen. It's a part of the recovery world. Uh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to say after three years, I haven't slipped up, um, but I know that they can happen and they can catch you off guard and they can be around any corner. Do you mind talking a little bit about your slip up or is it something you're not comfortable with? No, and I'm actually really glad that you brought that up because I think it's important for people to know that a, a relapse or a lapse doesn't have to be a relapse. Like you don't have to go completely back into burning your life to the ground. Um, you can, you've spent that time You've built, got those tools. Right. Yeah. You've, you've built up your toolbox. So like, it's just a lapse. So at the beginning of 2020, or I guess it wasn't March of 2020, I had just finalized my divorce. I was in a relationship that just ended and COVID started. It was my birthday. <laughs> it was my birthday. Wow, March 2020. Go. <laughs> yeah. Wow. What a month. Yeah. So my birthday and I was like, okay, this relationship ended. I was finally fine, fine, um, signing divorce papers and we were supposed to go out that weekend. Um, kind of, I guess, a divorce party just to socialize with my friends. And then COVID happened and everything got shut down. And I didn't have to drink, but it was all the things that would have triggered me in the past. So it was like, I'm going to get a free pass if I do this in a way. Like it's, like if I sat down and said, told everybody what what just happened to me and what I was a guest, they're gonna be like, "Oh, it makes sense." Yeah, and so I think I, I got I started playing with that idea that I could get a free pass. Did it now? Knowing uh, I'm I'm probably putting too much of a magnifying glass on your people pleasing personality, but personalities are all that's everything in my world. Uh, so now you're alone. You're home. It's COVID. You have to be home. And and people can't really see what you're doing. Did that play a factor? Do you think like, oh, not at work. People aren't going to see me. Because um, chances are you could have just got away with it and not told anybody. You know what I mean? I mean, that's it's yeah. a thing. I'm yeah. not saying it's a good thing, but it's a thing. You know what it, I mean? 
Yeah. Because COVID has really done a damage and a disservice to a lot of people out there in recovery because they are forced to isolation. They couldn't go to their 12-step meeting. Uh, they couldn't figure things out. And it was a perfect storm. Dr. Matt said the next epidemic's not going to be uh, drugs. It's going to be mental health. And I think this has really forced a lot of people into that situation. And what you're describing happened to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But you decided, let's give it a shot. Yeah, so and I actually wasn't alone when I started drinking. I had I I knew I already had the thoughts in my mind that this this could be the perfect storm for me to get away with this. Um that's an addict brain right there. <laughs> it's a total addict brain. Yeah, and it wasn't even like I was feeling that emotional. It wasn't feeling like I like this is the only way it will relieve pain. It was really this thought of like I could get away with this if I want to try it again. And I went to I wanted to go hiking with some friends because we were like, if we're outside, we'll just go. The, some trails were still open. And um, I went up to their house. They didn't want to go. And they wanted to play Monopoly. They're all drinking and I'm not. And I was so I started like taking sips off their drinks. Like, well, let me just try it. I just want to try this. And then took a couple more sips. And then I'm like, well, I've already drank. So let's just start, start taking shots. And it was not a fun night like it was not like we i fought with the guy that was there and um he threatened to call the cops because i was like shoving him and called my dad i'm like really like i'm 30 whatever like 32 years old you just called my dad (laughs) um i'm guessing the monopoly game didn't go well i won because i'm an accountant (laughs) okay it did so all right well there you go so even even buzz i still won um, but yeah, so it turned into a little bit of chaos and then the next morning, um, just felt awful, just physically awful. Cause I hadn't poisoned my body for two years and then mentally just was, um, the guilt, the shame, the embarrassment. And when I left the house, cause I obviously I stayed there, um, wasn't going to drive home, but I left the house and went to a gas station and bought all the things I used to buy when I would be in that guilt, shame, depression. So I bought like my Mike's hard lemonades and was just going to go home. I didn't have the kids back for two more days and um, went to my house and had them all sitting there. And I called a friend to come get them. I was like, I don't want to keep doing this. And so they came and got your Mike's hard lemonades Mm -hmm. and you got back on the road to recovery. Yeah. And, and and it happens, and that's a, you didn't burn your house down again. You didn't start back from zero, and so how has that benefited you today? So this this lapse, I like how you phrase that. Um, how has that helped you uh, in what you're doing today, having had that lapse? Uh, the the lapse felt like a very good confirmation that I can't drink normally because it, it was at first like, oh, I can have a couple sips and it'll be fine. But as soon as alcohol was in my system, all I wanted to do was drink until I was passed out. It went straight back to that. And it also has been a great tool for me helping other people to be like, okay, this happened to me. And if it's happened to you, you don't have to keep going because I think people see, get so fixated on how many days mm-hmm. in a row. Mm-hmm. They want that that days in a row count. And when they break that, they think that they deserve like a bender before they start over. Well, so it, it's, you know, Dr. Matt said it a couple of times during this podcast that addicts, you know, a lot of us share that same all or nothing mentality. And so if I can't have all of the sobriety, then I'm going to have none of it. And so if I've, if I've relapsed, then I'm just going to go way back into it because uh, I don't have it. And that's I, that personality I, structure. I proved you yeah. right. I proved you right because you said I was never going to do it. And here I am drinking. So, you know what? Screw it. Let's just go for this. Mm-hmm. But you didn't. You stopped it. You turned it around. You made a call to a friend because the opposite of addiction is what, Matt? Connection. And you have that connection. You had somebody come over and help you out. And I think that's great. And when you're talking with people to help them, that it is it, it is a reality. I mean, a lot of relapses happen. Uh, I'm not saying they're they're, they're great, uh, but they do happen. And it seems like you learned a lesson from this. Mm-hmm. So you start posting on Instagram, you start blogging, and you're doing all these things. Did I you want- post right away about your your lapse? Yeah, I called my parents right away because I didn't want them. We to already find called me. your dad. Well, my dad already knew. Yeah. So I, then I talked to my mom because I didn't want her to find out on social media. But I felt because at that point I was already running a sober page that um, if I didn't share that 
whatever I shared next was just going to be a lie. And then I also felt- so, so what was the response when you talked about your laps on your social? Oh, well, a ton of support. A ton of people, um, very supportive, very loving, very kind, not, a lot of nice messages saying, just keep going. And the accountability, back to that accountability of like, I've now outed myself that I did this. So I can't keep drinking secretly and get away with it. They now know. People are now going to be watching me to see like, is she drinking again? Is she acting like she's drinking again? And so that accountability and just um, not wanting to be a liar on my page. And so you start, you know, you got a pretty good presence on social media. Um, how does it go from a good presence on social media to I'm going to quit my job? Well, um, I wasn't happy. And I feel like I, in the last three years of trying to be a better mom, trying to be a better person, I wasn't leading the example of chasing my dreams the way I would tell my kids to chase their dreams. And I used to be so obsessed with like not wanting to be obsessed with alcohol or like sobriety. Like I don't want to be the person that only stays sober because they're obsessed with sobriety. But I, in my mindset has changed to like I am – it's not about being obsessed with sobriety. It's about being obsessed with living my purpose. If I had a problem with bunions, I would probably have a bunion page and be shouting it from the rooftops on how to help people with that. And so it's like it's not about being obsessed with sobriety. It's like my purpose is to help people. My per- I have a comfortability with talking. I have a comfortability with um, sharing my story. And sitting at an accounting desk, I felt like my soul was slowly dying. Like it just wasn't where I belonged. And so I had just started setting things up at my house. I started – I on enrolled in a life coaching recovery uh, coaching course. I started setting up a home office, started putting money aside to be able to um, try and build something and just got to a point where I took talk to Rob Eastman. <laughs> like, and, and, and I'm so glad you did because of him. You're here today. You know, in my recovery, I tell people all the time, I got sober to live not hide. And unfortunately, I know a lot of people in the recovery community who got sober and are just hiding. I wanted to get out and live life. I, you know what I mean? I, there was so much more out there that I wanted to do. And because of my recovery and my sobriety, I'm able to do that. Because in my addiction, I was just in a prison. I was in a prison of my own thoughts, my own feelings, and my own, my own emotions. And I wasn't really being authentic. I was giving you who I thought you wanted to be. And I was hiding behind behind alcohol. And so it sounds like that you, you, you found a purpose and it's helping people. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's amazing. And so now you're a life coach and you're working with others to help them find their road to recovery. Yes. That's amazing. Um, so, so authentic happiness, I guess, is kind of this term that popped in my head, which incidentally is also the name of a good book by psychologist Martin Seligman. But authentic happiness when a person really understands through their self-awareness who they are and, and, and what drives them, what makes them feel good and purposeful, then we, we did tend to call all of those things together happiness. And I think that that's one of the key components in maintaining recovery is when a person, we've said this before, it, just because you get re, you know it, sober doesn't mean problems go away. They're, they're there. In fact, all the stuff you're drinking to avoid, now you're sober and dealing with it, right? And so making life changes, that's a great example. And that I, I'm sort of flabbergasted that because I know several people who have worked their way through getting their CPA. It is a long road. It's a master's degree and a lot of testing afterwards, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I hate standardized testing. And so it's always amazing to me when people do so well at it to be able to say, you know what? I accomplished all of this and CPAs make a nice income. And, and I, I was the controller. So I'm top dog there at the apple farm or whatever. And, uh, and so I, I've reached a pinnacle goal, but I'm going to leave it in pursuit of authentic happiness and really finding my real happiness. And I admire that tremendously. Uh, And I'm glad you're here sharing that message. Not that everybody needs to quit their jobs, but everybody should take, I think, a look periodically at how, what's my purpose? Do I feel purposeful? Do I feel grounded? Do I feel motivated? Am I happy? And if not, I ought to pursue that because whether I'm trying to recover from 
you know, drugs and alcohol or being a grumpy jerk or overeating or whatever I'm trying to do to make my life better. That's a pursuit. I need to cut out, change things that take me away from that happiness. So I think that's an amazing part of your story. I'm glad you're here sharing that today. And when I look at you, the word that pops into my head is brave. I think you're a brave human. I really do. From the fact that you went into rehab at 21, uh, you know, you you raised your kids. She had uh, twins, you know. Yeah, four. She's yeah. got four kids. Four twins? No, four. Oh, four kids. kids. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know that, but you are brave because everything you done is take bravery and you know a lot of people would just turn their back and run and hide or just kind of act like it didn't happen but you you hit it head on and i think that's an amazing quality that you have and i think that it will really help a lot of people out there i do want to ask about your kids how are your kids doing they're great they're just little psychos they're um 11 8 and then the twins are four now and they're um they're a lot of fun they know about my my recovery they know about what i'm doing and um they're they are they're proud of me and i like that that they that i'm doing things that aren't what typical kind of moms would do maybe um but You're brave. I, yeah <laughs> well and i just think it's really important to like i don't I, I i on my instagram i dance on my table i do weird stuff like i'm chaotic and whatever and i used to try and be fit into this cookie cutter like who um, the best type of mom is like i want to be that mom i want to be like put together and organized and and adultish and it's like but that's not me that's not who i am and i'm not saying i want my kids to act like uh dancing weirdos that are on coffee tables all the time but i want them to be themselves so if like that fits you then do it and because that's what if it's mom so that's what mom does but if if being a farmer fits you, go be a farmer. If being a musician fits you, go do it. I, I just want to model being yourself. Well, since we have the life coach here for a second, Gentry, uh, how, give some parents advice. How, how young should they start talking to their kids openly about things like drugs and alcohol? Like what, is there, what would you recommend? I, we, you guys were talking about it earlier at the beginning of the show, and I feel like the earlier you can talk to them about it, the better. The more I talk to my kids, the more I'm open with them about it. Um, we're in a day and age where they can consume so much media that that provides all these false messages, right? Yeah, yeah. That if you're not also giving them like the, this idea of constantly protecting our kids, I I don't always 100 percent agree with. I feel like. We need to show them what real life is going to be like. Prepare them. Yeah, I was going to say preparation protects them if they feel prepared for the world. My good friend Rob Eastman told me once, I'd rather be a warrior in a garden than a a gardener in a war. Well, that's just good common sense. It really is. If people want to find out more information about you, Gentry, and they want about your life coaching skills and everything that you have to offer, where do they find it? So the best way to find me is on Instagram at Life with Gentry. Um, I also sell uh, shirts that are alcohol free AF, so they're AF squared. So you can go to afsquared.com. Um, but Instagram, I'm on TikTok, Life with Gentry. I love it. Any final thoughts, Doctor Matt? Oh, this has been great. No, I love the other theme. I guess that this guy popping into my head is. And maybe this only makes sense to me, so I'll make it quick. External versus internal. When we do things for external reasons, it might help and get us certain places. It might get us some accolades, but it's not going to be authentic. If we really want to be successful at the hardest stuff in life, which is overcoming drugs and alcohol, being a great parent, doing being your best self, it has to be internal. And I think that was the switch that flipped, I think, for you when – I'm going to put words in your mouth and correct me if I'm wrong. When you stopped caring so much what other people thought about you and you started doing things because you were being your real self. And I think that's a great message. How'd I do? Is that good? Yeah. No, okay. I love it. We'll leave it with that. That is the wise words from Dr. Matt Woolley, a clinical psychologist. Our guest today has been Gentry Jones. She's been amazing. Make sure you go give her a follow. Thanks for stopping by. I'm Casey Scott. Project Recovery is brought to you by our friends at knowyourscript.org. And in case you forgot... Project Recovery is what? It's KSL Podcast. Amen.
contents of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. A gun in the face. Then all of a sudden they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to... Give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.